Wait a minute. Oh, there you go. Do you want to say hi to Michael? Yeah. Hello, <laughs> Parker. Yeah. Oh, look. You Hello. Know, there you go. It's in there. There what, you go. What, what time is it, Parker? What time is it? Yeah. That's it's fine. adventure you time. Here, can't you? It's adventure time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was tops. Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello everyone, my name's M. welcome to Thorn In Your Side, and you might notice something immediately different in the sense that I've provided an updated intro, so I'd like to kindly thank um, a fellow named Simon Brew for providing that, that's all original and created uh, with a bit of homemade sampling I suppose. And also uh, another mate of mine named Kate Burkett for providing the vocals at the start. And I did ask her to provide a very awesome impersonation of um, Annie Lennox. Um, John, Annie Lennox sang Thorn in Your Side, Hello. didn't she? Uh, I think so. I was, As you said that, I was just thinking, who was it? It must have been. Yeah. I, I'm always confused because I'm, I'm never sure if it should be Thorn in Your Side or thorn in my side. Uh, John, you're talking too much. I haven't introduced you yet. Just wanted you to clarify. All right. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> thank you again, Simon and Kate. We'll keep that and see if it takes. It's also probably uh, something that, um, that also coincides with a new year and starting off new stuff. So what better way of starting off new stuff? Now, I'm about to introduce someone who's uh, very familiar to the audience and no one ever heard him 30 seconds ago. So I'm introducing everyone to John. Hi, John. Hey, Michael. Happy uh, second impeachment day. Ah, yes, yes, yes. The the news of the day. So this kind of happened, oh, I don't know, it was like four or five hours ago uh, since the time of recording. It's a very happy added bonus, I think, to what we were going to talk about today. And maybe also just to provide a, a bit more of a frame about what we're going to do for this episode and next episode, it's going to be our summer holiday series. So that basically means it's just going to be me and John for the next two episodes. So we're going to talk about one particular thing this episode, another thing in the next episode, and we're going to very uneasily try to connect the stuff that we want to explore with the topics and the issues of the day. So uh, does that sound all right with you, John? I think there was a little bit of that that I think I've just sprung on you. Yeah, no, certainly. And, and you know, so the second impeachment is a is probably, yeah, the most exciting thing that's happening at the moment. So, yeah, yeah, I, don't, I, I think, and, and obviously the, the sieging uh, of the capital, um, <laughs> all these things are probably going to be reflecting in our popular culture in, in ways to come in the future and probably is where something worth, yeah, reflecting back and seeing if we had any, uh, well, we, we definitely know that people saw this coming, but exactly the way that they uh, they saw it. Um, yeah, yeah, well, certainly. Well, I, I didn't expect a dude with uh, horns and rocking the White House. I, I didn't really see that coming. But, you know, random things, I suppose. Everything is ridiculous. Why not? The other thing as well, John, is that um, we normally, when we do our episodes, we tend to be doing them face-to-face, -face, but today we're doing this stuff over Zoom. So with this um, 
this latest, well, this most recent outbreak in New South Wales, it's caused us to retreat back to lockdown modes. So here we are, John. Yeah, yeah. I was really enjoying and, and yeah, we had recorded the, the last few in, in my office and I was really happy at going back to work and being in the office. And then, yeah, the outbreaks have meant that my office has really encouraged everyone to um, my campus to stay at home and work from home, which I remember actually almost this time last year, I was, or actually it was more like like March, but I was very excited about working from home and it was going to be such a good time, but oh my God, I've had enough of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, through the magic, magic, I shouldn't say that, through technology, you and I can, uh, can communicate. And just with a minute lag. So, um, you know, uh, we'll see how we go with that. that. That ought to make for some magical podcasting, I am sure. Just that slight extra delay between, which let's just, I hope the viewers, instead of thinking it's a delay due to technology, is a delay because we're really thinking hard about what we want to say. We're really thinking about it at that extra half second. Yes, we're pondering. We're pondering about how some fucking weirdo with horns was able to storm the capital and to suddenly become like um, the king of the internet for a day. Yeah, that requires half a second pondering at least. Um. Now, how we're going to hook that in, John, and I might try to come up with a very awkward segue, uh, this, this, this fuck with, with the horns, John, that, do you reckon he might look a little bit like the lich? <laughs> That's a pretty good. It is a nice way to bring it in. I thought my technology magic reference was uh, a good way to bring it in as well. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, you know, just on that, like it's just amazing the imagery of that because at the time the siege was happening of the capital like the insurgency whatever i mean i think we're still trying to work out what to call it um let's just call it for the sake of this podcast john let's see if it catches on let's call it the adventure time insurrection how's that yeah when you saw it happening or when i saw it happening it was like okay this is this is absurd like this is bizarre look at this guy with horns and painted face and you know these ridiculous flags and you know all this all the crazy stuff going on and then of course as as things have come out like it actually is a lot more disturbing you know and obviously the deaths of the people involved and and um you know, some of the imagery that we've seen where, you know, the first sort of imagery I saw, there was a lack of violence, but a lot of the imagery I've seen since, you know, it clearly was was quite a violent incursion. Yeah, there's definitely a darkness to it. Uh, possibly one of, or a couple of the most disturbing things is um, hearing stories of cops just subtly letting idiots go through the barricades that start up their 21st century Butch upon the, the White House. Also some stories that some of the insurrectionary compliment were also off-duty cops mm. who were just seizing the moment and really expressing the innate politics the odd US cop might be privately trying to express. But here we are, the world's watching. Let's just bring it out all, all at once. I mean, that was the first thing that was very obvious, which was the way the police treated this um, political action mm. versus the way they treated, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, just as a quick comparison. I mean, it was such an obvious in-your-face difference that, you know, even Biden had to make that point. Yeah. And also the fact that um, the, the actual response by state was dramatically slow. I think it took a little while for the National Guard to actually respond I mean, I'm not going to put too much of my tinfoil hat on and I might just base that upon uh, more so the, the incompetence of procedure rather than, than people just sitting on their hands. But that seemed to be all the culmination of not necessarily seeing this so much as a threat. But also, when you do see stories of, of shit-kicking elements of the state, like police, One's watching the barricades and, and letting people through and a very small capital guards compliment. Um, it does all conspire to be, to sound like some sort of negligence in comparison, like, and also choosing what your political threats are. Here's a bunch of right wing white normative, because uh, I can't call them white because I think there's a, there's, there's definitely a diversity there, but white normative in the sense of, you know, uh, still adhering to white ideals, I suppose, um, 
radicalism, fascists, if you will, attempting to, to storm the White House. And it all seems like a, a bit of a, a pantomime at first instance. But perhaps as we move into our adventure time metaphor, the more that you look into it, the more that you see the darker layers. Yeah, yeah, I certainly think that, and that certainly was my experience seeing it because at first it, it looked like a joke and the guy in the horns, the the Q shaman was, you know, very, very much a, a, a sort of something <laughs> that you would make up or, you know, creating some sort of game as a, a stupid avatar sort of thing. And then, yeah, definitely it got darker. I mean, I, I was caught in that thing of what are the police doing here? I saw footage of the police letting them through. And in some cases I could see, all right, there's four police officers trying to hold back 400 people. They can't do it. Like, so let them through. That makes some sense. But then I saw the other footage of people, you know, taking um, selfies with the police and, you know, reports of the police saying, you know, we support what you're doing. Yeah. Quite disturbing. I mean, that's the thing I think that, and, and I think this is something that that is probably worth maybe spending some time later on, People who are on the of the right sometimes I I don't think they realise that this is part of their politics. Like it was so interesting to see people on the right on Twitter saying, "Oh, this is Antifa. Like this is this can't be us. These are not our people. This must be a false flag operation." And for me, like obviously that's ridiculous, but them actually not perceiving that the sort of things they talk about, these sort of of causes they're fighting for you know, the racism uh, of, of some of their positions that, that it would lead to having people in their, in their broad church that would do these sort of things that they couldn't even conceive it. That I found very interesting, but I feel like I'm, I'm, you were bringing us back to adventure time. And every time I talk, I'm taking us further away. So maybe, maybe we should just dive into it. Uh, perhaps, but um, I, I would like to just say though, that I think that's something that's probably also a syndrome within the left as well. I remember a couple of days ago, there was a tweet floating around from John Pilger saying, oh, well, this is all a bit of a bit of a circus going on at the moment, but our true enemies are still the imperialist US, the true characters of the political edifice, and that's Obama, Biden. They're the ones we should be really serious about. But I think it harks back to a limitation or a flaw of picking your imperialisms, where I would argue that it's a bit more dynamic than that. And I think it also exposes where a fellow like John Pilger is right now. In my last episode, I referred to an element called the toxic left, where there are, uh, and I mean, it's up to one's personal perspective on who you you hang with and who you ally with and who you just want to kind of put in the corner. But ones that I particularly want to put into the corner are the ones that that really do come up with a very narrow concept of what oppositionary forces are. So when you're looking at imperialism, it's all very much monopolised by US elitism. The way that it interacts with capitalism might necessarily be explained very well. It's just that idea of a bad state. And I feel that that's quite disingenuous, especially when you try to understand exactly how class interactivity exists within all of that. But look, uh, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm just basically about to transform this into another episode. So I'm going to blame you, John. From now on, I'm just going to try and anchor this back to Adventure Time. Is that all right? I think so. Let, let's. <laughs> I, I'm holding back as well because I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I want to now talk about my fear of the extremist right. What we're going to do with Adventure Time is that uh, we're going to unpack it a bit and also possibly see how it presents as something of an allegory as to what's happened in recent weeks. At the start, or when you and I were playing this, John, we were just originally going to content ourselves with um, thinking about what the the capital uprising or the Adventure Time insurrection meant. (laughs) in terms of our allegorical examination. But yeah, I, I think with, uh, with what's happened with the news today, it's kind of just, um, just kind of blown our political minds. Uh, so <laughs> let's see if we can rein it in. But 
Perhaps the other thing as well about when we uh, talk about Adventure Time is that it works in a very metaphoric way, in very subtle and also in very ironic and sarcastic ways. Uh, So it's a very multi-layered show. But perhaps to start off with, John, do you want to just do something of a very handy expose on what Adventure Time's about? And maybe from there we might dive into its relative nature to current events happening in the US. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds good. So I think I, I come to to this topic from sort of two, or actually three really important positions. One is an academic that's interested in pop culture and its uh, political themes. Um, and certainly I have a view that popular culture not only talks to us about the politics that we're experiencing now, but will often give us uh, views on, on how politics and how lives could be. Secondly, I'm coming to it as a fan. Adventure Time is is a cartoon that I've I've quite enjoyed. And then thirdly, I'm coming to it as Adventure Time has actually been a cartoon that has been really good for me with the new baby because Parker, our little boy, has been able to, like he watches Adventure Time and it's just one of those things that it catches his attention and it makes him feel comfortable. In fact, when he was, you know, six months old and he would cry, we would sing him the theme song at the end of Adventure Time to calm him down. So so I'm pretty sympathetic to the old Adventure Time. It's been very good for me. But for those out there, just to refresh those who, who are fans or have watched it or those who maybe haven't heard of it, it's a, a cartoon series that ran for 10 seasons um, between 2010 and 2018. They have sort of relaunched it and and um, there's a new sort of season coming out. There was 283 episodes of it, but they were like half episodes, like, you know, 12-minute long episodes. Mm. Uh, and basically it's about the two main characters are Finn the Human Boy and Jake the Dog, who happens to be his sort of adopted brother. And they have these cutesy sort of... Dungeons and Dragons style adventures um, in this world that is, there was a board game called Candyland, which is very popular in the US. So it, 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 it reads on that. There's a, you know, the Candy Kingdom we'll talk about. There's these other kingdoms. So it's like a very much, you know, an adventure sort of boys thing. In fact, the, the start of it often uh, references that Conan the Barbarian sort of, you know, holding the sword. So Finn's a guy that runs out there with the sword. I think he starts off as like a 10 or 11 year old boy. And the adventure happens in this world called the world of Ooh, which we find out later on in the series is actually Earth a thousand years after a nuclear war, Mm. uh, which then sort of is the important factor. But you don't find that out straight away, do you? No, no, you don't. That's something that that comes out much, uh, much later. They refer to it as the Mushroom Wars. Mm. Um, so at first it just seems like, you know, it could be an alternate universe sort of thing, um, you know, with a magic dog that can stretch and talk. People who are made of candy, you know, people who are made of fire. You know, there's Bemo, a little computer that talks and, 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 and interacts. So it, it's very cutesy in that sort of style. And definitely, I think what you're talking about too is it starts off, you know, pretty sort of just a a standard cartoon, but as it goes on throughout the seasons, it gets into more serious themes, deals with some pretty, um, some, some pretty interesting broad themes. I mean, it's certainly, it's well known for, um, and we'll talk a bit about this, I think it's exploration of gender roles, sexuality, mental illness. And I think it's also well-known and, and well-liked because it draws on elements of, of pop culture. So, like, the very first episode of the se- first season is a zombie episode where there's zombie candy people and they um, they have to, you know, cure them. There's vampires, Marceline, the vampire queen. And my favourite part of it, which is, and I'm a big fan of the Jack Kirby-inspired Marvel, like, cosmic world, you know, um, with all these entities that are cosmic entities like Galactus and the Living Tribunal and and these sort of things. Mm. Um, and Adventure Time does that. It has that mythology in it as well, which becomes very important because Finn, even though he's a boy, ends up playing on this grand stage of, of cosmic entities and saving the world and the universe multiple times. So there's a lot going on in the show. Mathematical! So you've watched it, we talked about. Do you like Adventure Time? And if you do, what what's the thing that you've liked most about it? Like I'm a single male. I, I don't have a family, John. You've, you've got a, a new family. I think where 
this show particularly has appeal is that an adult can watch it with their toddler child and you both get joy out of it uh, just in very different ways. But at the same time, there are some different certain strands that will connect people as a common audience to this show. For me, when I'm watching it, I'll park into that inside joke that, um, that your adult audience members will get when you're watching Adventure Time where there's certain things going on and uh, as the series continually goes on, it's it's very much becomes increasingly like a facade where it's playing as a Saturday morning cartoon where you've got all the, the different tropes getting on. And I've actually got a, a bit of a personal theory. I don't know how much of a universal fanboy theory it is, but I... I you know how at the start of Adventure Time where the, the actor who plays Finn, Jeremy Shader, Shader, Shader? Yeah, I've said it a few times. I think I got it right one time. But um, he was he was just basically a boy at the start of the series. And by the end of it, manly voice. I put his voice breaking, I think, in I think the second or the third season into it. And I don't know if it's coincidence or it's just like the, the creators of the show kind of just jumping on it but it suddenly exposes its layers and universe and deepness once jeremy's voice breaks and starts becoming deeper what do you think of that john or am i just basically wearing my face mask one too many times and cutting off the oxygen to my brain no i i definitely think you have a point certainly um you know early on in the first season we we don't really have an overarching theme or mythology. It's just story after story after story. Season two, I think we start to get a little bit darker, like we get the Nidosphere and uh, a few other things there. But you're right, it really isn't, I think, when we get into season three, and season three is where we're getting into that element of that, which is an important element, like Finn's relationship with Princess Bubblegum going from someone he's got a crush on to, you know, the fact that the crush is not reciprocated and exploring that. So I think you're right. I think it, it definitely the first three seasons, uh, it, it isn't as deep. It isn't as dark. It isn't as getting into serious issues. It's really from, from season three and four. And it's a good point, actually, you make that it ages with Finn. It gets a little bit more complex then as the actor's voice breaks. That's a really good point. I like that. Algebraic! I'm wondering whether it's it's not a deep plot take or not, but it really harked on me when um, when I read that that article that you gave me, John, where I just did a quick cramming just before this episode. But it really subverts the idea of masculinity and how that often plays within cartoons. So yeah. you'll remember the '80s cartoons, you know, male comes in, saves the day character development all in 30 minutes, um, everything resolved in 30 minutes, wait until next weekend for the next episode, that sort of stuff. It turns us on its head in the way, and I think of a couple of examples here, John, where there's a couple of odd instances where things just really wrap up very abruptly and very cheaply. An immediate example I can think of, and um, if you can just add a few more brushstrokes to it, John being the expert, but there was that story arc where they go into farm world and then because Finn creates an alternate universe or whatever, and that's, yeah, it's stuff that's very much driven by Finn and Jake. And at that point of the series, we're actually, we know that there's a bit of a universe going on as a, there's a whole multitude of characters and, a multiverse. A multiverse, if you will. Uh, so with Farm World, that basically brings the centre back on Finn and Jake. And I think there was some self-awareness there on the part of the producers in that it wraps up in a very abrupt way where you discover just when everything's about to really go pear-shaped, you notice that suddenly you come to a scene where Jake's watching it all on TV. And then there's a very convenient plot development where Jake realizes he can just wish it all away and then it, it gets wished away and then everything uh, just wraps up click very quickly and you're just kind of watching it and going oh well all's well that ends well I suppose but 
When I was reading that article, I kind of thought, well, these are masculine tropes that I think the creators are basically just disdaining and saying, we're going to give it short thrift where we can kind of become a bit more subversive and look at better feminist arcs that we can kind of dig in to that universe. So I'm thinking almost immediately that idea of different kingdoms run by different princesses which seems to be um, an allegory for liberal democracy. We can talk a bit about the ooh, apocalypse and how the, how the bombs dropped, which I feel like is basically a match with World War II. And then world recovery was the creation of the kingdoms and however you want to frame it with uh, the hegemonic order that's a combination of US imperialism and the UN and all those liberal institutions that arose post-World War II. That's the stuff that tends to carry on. And at face value, it seems like it's happening in the background, but that seems to drive the series, how that develops and how the different aspects of it come to be. And the development of Princess Bubblegum as this person who has this real burden of being a superpower and maintaining the hegemony and some of the difficult decisions that she needs to make. And she's uh, she's a polymath and she isn't the princess in the very orthodox sense of a Saturday morning cartoon where she's just basically someone sticking around as a device to be saved and then also you're finding out the Finn's actually quite inept at the end of the day like you'll just basically fuck it up and have suddenly cut to a scene where Jake's coming up with this weird ass wish thing and Finn just tends to kind of go into modes of self-destruction and all that sort of stuff I'm in my element that's the angle that I've hit when I've watched the show where you're seeing these feminist issues that really drive uh, a sense of continuity within the series whereas the tropes that the the show plays at that they seem like very satirical diversions that's what I'm kind of getting as an adult watching it seeing this inside jokes whereas if I was a kid watching it I'd just go that's awesome how many swords there's a there's a grass sword that comes out of his arm um, his arm falls off. You know, how gross is that? So there's there's those aspects. That's kind of what I've been I getting think, out of it, John. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting because you're right that Finn is often saved by the fact that his best friend and brother is a magic dog that can grow to immense size and become anything. That, that certainly helps him in many cases. Princess Bubblegum turns out to be an extremely competent leader and extremely competent in, in plans. So I remember the episode where they're trying to save Lemon Hope from uh, Lemon Grab at Castle Lemon Grab. And Finn's going, oh, we'll do pranks. And Princess Bubblegum goes along with it, but then later reveals that she knew his plans would never work, but they were good distractions for her plan, which would work. <laughs> so I certainly think at its, at its base, there is this really interesting thing where there is this conversation about gender and leadership, where you have these princesses, and princesses seem to be the default leaders in these kingdoms and the candy kingdom being the biggest with princess bubblegum and while we learn later on some some things that might concern about her her rule she's quite benevolent you know she's very intelligent she's really in charge she really is doing very well and her kingdom is very stable everyone's really happy we see you know the fire kingdom when it's led by the fire king is a terrible evil place and then when flame princess takes over it, it becomes a much better place we see all these um, princesses in there. We see, while Finn and Jake are males, and Finn, I think the thing for him is he's the, the weakest. Everyone else is much more competent and much stronger in some sort of way, but he's so earnest. He will, he's always trying. He's always action. Mm. He's always trying to, to do the right thing. He's always trying to, to contribute and to fight and to lead, but it's the other people who are really in power who are really making the difference. And the women seem much more competent and everything seems to work. You've got the Ice King in his kingdom and he's inept. You know, he's a joke. You've got Hans and Abadir, you know, in the Nidosphere and, you know, his is a nightmarish hell world. So there definitely, I think, is this commentary about women being in charge and that being better. And when men are in charge, it's not good. That That's a very broad theme across it. And certainly there is an interesting... Thing where the Ice King has his fan fiction where he reverses everyone's gender um, <laughs> in his world. So I think that is an insight 
some ways, I think that's a commentary on the commentary. If you get we're actually at this, we're pointing out the fact that we, we inverted the genders um, <laughs> there. So I think, and that is like, it is interesting because I think it is a show and I'm very conscious of shows that I watched as a kid that were just all guys. And here's a show where the two main protagonists are, are guys, but yet there's all these other characters who are women who are, are, are really fantastic characters and, you know, aspirational characters, I guess. La da 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 da, I'm gonna bury you in the ground. La da 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 da, I'm gonna bury you with my sound. I also want to probably talk a little bit about probably the favourite character that I have in it, Marceline, the, the vampire queen. Now, that's a character that kind of turns things on its head, where in first instance, because the show immediately presents as a top-heavy young masculine fantasy, Element! Marceline is the, the femme fatale, the, the vampire who may be evil, may be good, she can't be trusted... But the more that she lobs in and does things, the more that you realise that there is a bit of a backstory there. Her role in the series is thing that is definitely quite enmeshed with the overall storyline. And by the end of it, you're you're really kind of just sitting in to, to see where things might lead with her. And you find that she does something that kind of crosses what unfortunately still remains as a final frontier or cartoons in that what is confirmed is a homosexual relationship with Princess Bubblegum where we had to kind of hang out for it and will they or won't they and also with the idea of oh it's cartoons uh, we can't have that sort of stuff because cartoons still at its face still has that homophobic type of quality and heteronormativity but with a character like Marceline it, it does subvert so many things I mean we've talked a lot about the actual series and the actual format of the show but the characters kind of back that up as well so for me it's it's very much uh, epitomized through someone like Marceline. You're right she's a very interesting character and comes to be certainly by the end one of the central characters of of the story and you know is is her and Princess Bubblegum are the characters that really sort of when people talk about those themes of sexuality and fluid sexuality as well. And there's lots of, of conversation about fluid gender as well, that there's certain characters that their gender sort of flicks. So Demo's gender, as much as a little computer game boy thing can have a gender. Well, I guess a Game Boy does have a gender, doesn't it? Play it and and Bemo has needs. Uh, you discover the little Game Boy with legs and arms has needs. And that's it. So yeah, Marceline does that really well. She's got that interesting relationship with her father. We find out about her history with the Ice King as well as a sort of surrogate father and protector that's slowly losing his identity because of the of the crown. She's definitely an interesting character. We see she's had boyfriends, but in the end you do get that payoff in that last episode. But it is like you're right. It it's it's obvious to all those who watch it but it's still got that like 1950s kiss thing where you don't actually see them kiss. Mm. They hug in a way that they're clearly kissing. But if you don't want that to be a kiss, you don't have to see it be a kiss. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's um, the Disney gay treatment. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, certainly that's the sort of stuff that we see. Like when she's introduced in the beginning, she's just... Yeah, the femme fatale, she's a vampire teasing the, the two protagonists, you know, who's clearly more powerful than both of them and eventually, you know, lets them keep the, her treehouse because she likes them and they stand up to her, basically. And later on we find this, this very more, uh, much more complex story that touches on those. She's actually central to, you know, conversations of, or, or the themes of sexuality. She's central to the idea of gender roles and stuff as well. And certainly to Simon, the Ice King's, you know, mental illness as well. Yeah. And and her relationship with him is really key because, again, we see a character like the Ice King who is just the villain in the beginning. The more and more we learn about him, by the end of it, he's he's one of the heroes as well. And, yeah, you mentioned there earlier, John, about um, the Ice King introducing his own fanboy, fan fiction type stuff. I think by the end of it, the, uh, the overarching themes of the show kind of had to rescue the Ice King from himself. <laughs> mm. 
what we might like to do for the rest of the episode here, John, is now try to refer this series to current events in the US. This guy with the horns that became internet king for a day. Is he the lich, John? Go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the lich is ultimately, you know, evil. Just wants the destruction of all life. And I don't know if the Q shaman is quite at that level. (laughs) But it it is interesting because the lich is that force, right? That force of destruction. They just want to destroy. They just want to destroy. And I've got to say, when you see people storming into the capital, like it's just, you you have to be delusional to think that this is what's going to spark off a popular uprising. Like you, you, anyway. Mm. The lich is one of my favourite characters, but, but if I can just... I, see, if I talk about the lich, I'm going to take us away from politics and I'm going to talk more about some sociological concepts. But um, Well, I, I'm going to stop you right there, John, because <laughs> I know that the lich is basically, it'll lead you down this rabbit hole where you'll start talking about big concepts of spirituality, the creation of the universe, the dichotomic relationship between the devil and God, the constructs associated with both. And then how he becomes a baby boy by the end of the series. I bet you that's, that's where you're going to go, right? That's the baby boy part is the part I like the best. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's 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 the, the lich's, the, the narrative, the lich for me is nurture trumps nature. He's yeah. this epitome of evil, the, 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 this, the most evil creature that's ever existed, gets turned into a baby, gets brought up by tree trunks to Mr. Pig. You know, who are the most loving people in the whole of Ooh, mm. and then turns into this loving sweet pea who ends up uh, at the end. You see him, he's a hero, he's, he's inspired by Finn and becomes a, a hero in, in the distant future. So, that's my take on the lich, <laughs> yeah. And just a bit of a side issue there like, you, if if the show held true to its masculine start, it would basically culminate in what happens to the lich, like. It, that's where everything would drive towards. But I think it was the actual literal last episode. You just see him for about a couple of seconds. You realise he's grown up, he's well-adjusted, he's doing his thing, and it's like, oh, okay, well, that's nice. He's turned out all right. And, yeah, back to where it really was at that time. It goes back to my original point where anything involving the, the masculine side of the series, it just kind of goes somewhere and fizzles out very quickly, and it, it, they do it in a very subtle way. Well, yeah, let's, let's admit that the final episode, they defeat Glob not by fighting, but by singing, by being in harmony. And from Betty, you know, wishing to protect Simon. That's, that's the stuff that saves them in the end. How they reconciled the whole series is basically what you do with your son. Like you, you mentioned earlier in the episode that to calm <laughs> him true. down, you, you sing in the lullaby of the, the series, uh, the, yeah. the series theme. That's what they did at the end of the bloody series. Yeah. And in all, seeing all these things, like in, it's a really good point that you make, especially in the end, Finn is earnest and he fights hard and, you know, he's, he's trying to do all the right things and he's in there, but he's not crucial to the outcome. The outcome really is Bemo singing the song and then them, everyone else working out that this is working. And then, you know, Betty Betty wanting to protect Simon, who she's, she's deeply in love with. Mm. These are the things that save the world. And, and Finn's there and he does good work, but he doesn't shoot the exhaust port of the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't do the long shot and just rescues everything. I think what we're, we're continuing to fall into the trap with John is um, just how extensive the aspects of this show is. So just remind me, John, like the last season was 2018. Is that, that was, that's right, isn't it? That's correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So in many ways, it was kind of prophesizing what has happened over the last couple of weeks in America. Like, I mean, not to the grand scale of, um, of Civil War 2, just something in a very more circusy way, despite the tragic dark elements to it, where... Like, it's Princess Bubblegum's family. It's stuff that she, like, characters that she created so she could envelop her own sense of family. They've ended up squaring off against each other. Now, that's, like, a something that signifies the US just basically having its own inner turmoil with some of the things that it's self-made. 
over the last 200 years. Would you say that that's something that you could draw out of the, the, the end of the series there? It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way, but it is a, it is an interesting point that it is her family who ends up in this war with her. And I'm in the background, which is where Princess Bubblegum's character becomes a little bit concerning, is, you know, she has herself and her brother when she's young. She decides to create her an uncle, an auntie and a cousin so that she'll have people and already they'll be my advisors, like they'll advise her and stuff. And of course they end up having their own agency and they want to do their own things. And her uncle wants to create the candy kingdom. And she actually didn't have an interest in this. Yeah. And then in the end, they decide to usurp her. Like they want to basically, and the, and the uncle comes up with this idea to, to give her this juice that will turn her into this, um, you know, silly candy sort of thing, but it all backfires and it falls on them and they become silly, you know, candies and stuff. And I've got to say the uncle is the uncle is just full Western US capitalism, by the way. That's just my take. (laughs) And the interesting thing though is is this experience means that Princess Bubblegum then when she creates the rest of the citizenry of Candy Kingdom makes them all you know, simple and and silly and, you know, doesn't allow them to have really, to have agency. She makes them all controllable. So she does tend to be this bit of this, you know, fascist sort of monarchical sort of leader. Uh, Liberal liberal democracy, John. (laughs) And it then is interesting when they gain their their intelligence again and they want to have this conflict with her and this war with her and it's really all about... Their family relationship for the rest of, of the people involved, the Candy Kingdom and stuff, it means nothing. You know, if, if the uncle took over the Candy Kingdom, it's really not going to affect anyone else. But the war by its very nature drags in all of, ooh, like all the princesses, you know, end up and all the main characters end up on one side or the other. Mm. And it, it requires lumpy space princess to come out of nowhere and reconcile everything by, by rebooting Oh, no, that actually happened before the war, didn't it? Yeah, that, that's what her, actually started it, set it off, wasn't it, when she did yeah, the, the reboot? It's her rebooting, yeah, that, that gives the uncle and the and the auntie and the cousin their intelligence back. And then they realise for, you know, like a, <laughs> hundreds of years, they've, they've been a punch bowl and, a and you know, a silly candy that they've, they haven't been themselves. So a lot of this is the revenge for that. The article that you sent me was suggesting that the Lumpy Space Princess was perhaps a parody of US consumer culture. I guess compared to all the other princesses, she's the one that takes the selfies. She's the one that's probably the most official of them all. She's an interesting, she's actually my brother's favourite character, but my wife can't stand her, so it's quite interesting. (laughs) She is obnoxious and she's, you know, full of herself and arrogant and, yeah, she's an interesting character. I'd say that's the thing, Princess Bubblegums, and and she's central to the part that I think is a really good analogy for, for America, but certainly that war at the end is... Is yeah, candy versus candy. It's a it's a civil war of you know basically just about who should be the leader. There's no fundamental ideological differences between those two groups. Yeah, I just see it as something that really is a state of play in the U.S. at the moment, like a, a crisis of national conscience. I think Trump has exposed that. If it wasn't already being observed, I guess Trump just wanted to make it very much a a literal examination that stuff is fucked right now. I think it does feel like I remember when we were at uni and we would talk about Labor or Liberal or Democrat or Republican and the argument was they're both different sides of the same coin. There really isn't that much difference. And it was, you know, certainly true and and still maybe is that the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, their policies don't differ that much. They're not fundamentally opposed. Uh, Well, you know, we used to say look at... Europe post World War Two and and the diversity you would see in parliaments from you know communist and socialist on one side and fascist on the other we we never had that difference, but it certainly feels culturally at least if not politically that in the US there really is a diverse uh, there really is an opposition between the Republicans and the Democrats but but whether that is just theatre and just you know what we're seeing or and whether that is policy is a little bit hard to nail down at the moment. Mm, but still allegorical nonetheless, I would argue. I'm a very stable genius. One final point there that you glag with me before we started upon this podcast is that your thoughts on the King of Oob and who 
he might epitomize. Yeah, he comes in quite late. We first really meet him at the wedding of uh, Mr. Pig and uh, Tree Trunks, where Princess Bubblegum is shocked as the ruler of the Candy Kingdom to find that Tree Trunks doesn't respect her authority and wants to be married by the King of Ooh. And the King of Ooh in that inversion is obviously a male who is got a very yellowy, orangey colour to him. And it turns out he's a con man. He's a con man who has his own Zeppelin, you know, kingofu.com, uh, who claims to be the king of all, all, all of you, who uh, a few, clearly a lot of people in the land of you believe him to be. So, like, you know, Tree Trunks believes that the king of you is, is legitimate. Um, and we find out later on, you know, we get examples of, and Princess Bubblegum clearly thinks he's a con man and tries to expose him but gets caught out and looks like a bit of an idiot. But we definitely get to see him as a con man later on when he uh, manipulates Sweet Pea into leaving school and dancing in front of people so that King of Ooh and uh, Toronto can steal money from them. Then in this really interesting arc, for some reason, Princess Bubblegum agrees to an election for who should be the leader of the Candy Kingdom. And King of Ooh is there doing the silly political presentations and going over the top. And she just doesn't campaign because, you know, she thinks that everyone will believe in reason and will vote for her. And, of course, the King of Who runs his campaign, which is influenced by a cosmic entity called Org Lord who, who wants to capture the, the <laughs> comment That's and right. wants basically Princess Bubblegum. So King of Who is taking this opportunity to win this election to take over. And he does a speech and, you know, he's lying in his speeches where he goes, I'm 8,000 years old, could be, you know, and and all this sort of stuff, wins the election and becomes the princess of the Candy Kingdom and basically is looking to make as much money out of it as possible. So they end up finding Nettie, who is Princess Bubblegum's brother, is a dragon who his fluids are basically the water of the Candy Kingdom. And when he sees him, or he starts doing what they call the money song because he can just (laughs) say, look, I can monopolise, monetize this and I'll be rich. And so he's corrupt he's a con man he's dodgy for me he's trump yeah he's trump all the way right and then the interesting thing is he ends up getting kicked out because uh the the king of the vampires is attacking the candy kingdom princess bubblegum who has been usurped and now lives in exile is fighting him and the banana guard so the military see her and go she's beautiful and they turn to the king of who and they go you're not beautiful we don't trust you basically and there's a coup and he gets they work out his earwax he's literally made of earwax they throw him in a fire and uh and they usurp him and they have a coup and they take over and eventually princess boa gum comes back so for me I see king of who as a commentary on trump and it's around about the right time and it's a silly Trump and it's a Trump that's not damaging. It's a Trump that tries to get the, the position of princess to make as much money out of it as possible. So for me, I thought the King of Who is a commentary on Trump, but obviously is not the Trump that we're seeing now, which is, is really a Trump that is much more of a danger to American democracy than I think, you know, early on we saw Trump as a little bit of a clown figure that I don't know if we all see it that way anymore. Yeah, that's probably something how it started off where he's a sideshow and I think there's still a number of lefties that will still consider him a sideshow and for that I refer to John Pilger as I alluded to earlier on but by the end of it he has definitely ingrained himself into the fabric of social and political crisis as it's unfolding not only in the US but in the world and how it all kind of affects each other like beats of a butterfly. I think what we've kind of done here tonight, John, is is really find a way of applying Adventure Time to the world and how we understand the world. I reckon we did that. I think we could have easily spent another three or four hours really unpacking the, the different layers of the, the universe that Adventure Time presents. Uh, I reckon we could have spent a whole um, episode on on basically what Tree Trunks is about. Because that's cool. Like, there's a story behind the voice, uh, behind Tree Trunks, that I'm not going to go into because otherwise it will become a three or four hour episode. (laughs) 
So where to from here, John? We're just about to conclude part one of our holiday series where we apply stuff that we watch on TV into the real world. What are we going to do the the next episode, John? I'm I'm trying to um I'm trying to headlock you into to watching a series called The Vow. How are we going with that? Yeah, this one was really my pick. I really wanted to talk about Adventure Time, and I'd love to talk about it again in the future. But I think this was my pick, and The Vow is your pick. So this mm. is something where we were talking about fiction this time round and a silly cartoon. This time round, we're talking about a documentary that that you have got me into yeah which sounds quite interesting so this is one where I'm I'm going to come to it with fresh eyes yeah I'm looking forward to the next one okay all right this is where um basically I get a bit unleashed I think next week because uh it does feel like this stuff going on with the vow definitely talk about more about it in the next episode but I do feel that this is something that everyone would have been talking about last year if it wasn't for that pesky pandemic and the new fascism. If it wasn't for those two little things, I'm, I reckon everyone would be talking about the vow. It, it is something I'm, I'm, I'm interested in because from what I understand, this is about like a tech company, yeah? Yeah. And it's about, and certainly this is something where people find their meaning in, in the company they join and, you know, it becomes a dominant part of their lives. So, yeah, I'm quite interested in that because I mean one of the things I certainly studied at at university and, and ended up touching on when I did my thesis is is people looking you know in a post-religious world people looking and finding meaning in the different places so yeah this sounds very interesting so this time around this is your thing so I'll be coming to it and and I'll be I think you know asking you the questions and trying to understand okay how does how does the how does the vow fit into to our politics and understanding our political understanding of the world. All right. Well, make sure you do your homework beforehand, John, and we'll get into it. Sounds good, mate. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks very much tonight, John. I'll remind everyone out there that Thorn in Your Side has a new, ironically enough, started a new Twitter feed around the same time that a certain individual got um, got the band stick on Twitter, uh, which, uh, which was basically their moments of Rome burning, I think. So have a look at the Thorn in Your Side Twitter channel that's, um, that's just lobbed up. Subscribe to the Facebook page. But in the meantime, we'll see you next week for part two of our holiday series. Bye now.